On the morning of June 29, 2020, three workers were installing shingles on the roof of a two-story residential home in Columbia Station, Ohio. When an OSHA compliance officer drove past the work site, he saw two workers on the roof of the house without any discernible form of fall protection. He investigated and issued a citation alleging four serious violations of OSHA standards. The citation was issued to Philip Nemeke, the owner and operator of Nemeke Roofing. Mr. Nemeke agreed to install the shingles for the homeowner and arranged for the other two workers to be on the job site that day. However, an OSHA administrative law judge vacated all four citations against Mr. Nemeke, ruling that he was not an employer as defined by the OSH Act. I'm Taylor Johnson, and we'll discuss the ALJ's decision on this, the November 16th, 2022 episode of the OSHA 3030. Welcome to the OSHA 3030. I'm Taylor Johnson. I'm an attorney at the law firm Keller & Heckman right here in Washington, D.C. And I'm fortunate to be joined today by my friend, colleague, and mentor here at Keller & Heckman's OSHA Law Practice Group, Manish Rath. Hey, Taylor. How are you? I'm good. Doing good. How are you? Uh, great. I'm glad to be participating in this uh, program with you because it's a great topic. Uh, it goes to the fundamental question of who's an employer that would be subject to the Occupational Safety and Health Act. Right. Right, exactly. And, you know, I'm, I'm very anxious to get into it. So let's just go ahead and outline what we're going to talk about today. So first, we're going to cover the background regarding the incident. And then we'll get into uh, what's going to be sort of an important, you know, focus of the program here, a discussion of the definition of employer. Yeah, and Taylor, I think on that subject, we ought to first go into what the various arguments were from the parties, the respondent, Namaki, and what OSHA's argument was in trying to press the citation, and how the ALJ looked at those arguments. Absolutely. And we'll, we'll unpack what's called the Darden test. So we'll provide some background on the, the case that, that led to that, uh, that test and sort of how it's been applied by the ALJ in this case. And therefore, you know, of course, we'll, we'll go into the ALJ's decision and, and find out how he ruled in this case. Right. It's a question of who's an employee and conversely, by implication, who's an independent contractor or a non-employee. Right. So we'll talk about that. And there's a quick update we want to give on that subject matter in, in the general field of workplace law. And then finally, as we always do, we're going to make sure our members of the OSHA 3030 community walk away with some practical takeaway items. We'll talk about what employers can do in light of this decision. Exactly. And remember, uh, the 3030 is recorded so that we can rebroadcast it as a podcast and as a video housed on our website and YouTube. After we're done today, we'll turn off the recordings, go off the record, uh, just, to, just for participants in our, in our live webinar today. That's right. That's for the live audience only today on, on uh, November 16th, 2022. And Taylor, you mentioned that we've stored them all on our website. That's khlaw.com. And that goes back eight years, some rich content, over 110 episodes with some, some extremely relevant, even to this day, all the topics are very relevant, very educational subject matter for, in the field of OSHA law. I encourage people to check them out. But you also mentioned that we record this and republish it as a podcast. So I ask everyone to consider uh, subscribing to it as a podcast so that it just gets dropped into their phone when a new episode comes down and you can listen to it on your way in and out of work. And, and while you're moving about, the version that's on the website is the slides, the video, and the, the, content, the uh, audio content as well. And when you get an invitation to an Ocean 3030, I know I've asked this every month, I'll continue to. 
make sure you forward it on to three other people that are either professionals in safety and health or in-house counsel at your organization or other organizations. Anyone who's responsible in any part for corporate safety and health should, should know about this program and, and have an opportunity to maybe, maybe check it out. So with that said, Taylor, why don't we start with what happened at this, uh, at this site that formed uh, the basis of a citation? Right. So we started in the summer of 2020, a compliance safety and health officer in Columbia Station, Ohio, I was investigating a work site where Mr. Nemeke was, was working on a roof. It's interesting because he's driving by the compliance safety and health officer. The compliance safety and health officer is driving by and sees in open plain view the construction going on on the roof of a residential home. And he has in his passenger seat a trainee. Uh, who who bears witness to all of these facts? I think that's a critical point. What he right. sees, Taylor, is that they're they're working up on the roof, and he can't identify any visible means of fall protection: harnesses, ropes, lines. Yeah, that's exactly right. And there's a few interesting uh, facts that occur here in this case that we we wanted to just you know provide real quick. And so so one of the first is that you know Mr. Nemeke there ends up being a citation issued, and first he he claims that he had a constitutionally protected right to privacy which would have prevented OSHA from entering the worksite. We don't really go, we're not going to go into that too much here, Manish, I don't think, but we did, we did just wanted to, you know, touch on that real quick. Well, yeah, it is an interesting story that, that sets the, the, the tone, if nothing else, Taylor, for the, the whole case, because the inspector right. drives up the drive, gets out, introduces himself, identifies himself as a uh, compliance officer with the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. And this Mr. Nemeke starts yelling and screaming at him, it's expletive laced as a tirade and chase, basically chases them off the property. The compliance officer and the trainee immediately get in their car and drive away in order to avoid a conflict. But what he's yelling, in addition to expletives, is that he has a constitutional right to privacy and that without a search warrant, the compliance officer has no right to be there. I think this is interesting, Taylor, because while there, there's a colorable argument that uh, a governmental investigation may require absent probable cause, a search warrant in the event of probable cause. The search warrant is really a proxy for probable cause and it's a showing of probable cause. Nevertheless, it may not be Mr. Nemeke's right to assert. It may be the homeowner's right to assert. And so, so I think that the compliance officer left mainly, according to his own testimony, to extricate himself from what could have been an escalating confrontation. Right, exactly. Certainly more uh, colorful facts than we typically see in the buildup to an OSHA citation uh, being issued. But when all is said and done after the investigation, there was a citation issued. The compliance officer um, claimed four uh, serious violations of OSHA standards. Those were regarding protective helmets, eye protection, fall protection, and portable ladders for the four. Yeah, and Taylor, with fall protection, just to point out that they were uh, observed on the roof. of They were doing a roofing project, and they were observed on the roof, and it's a two-story building at the front of the house. So total penalties, over $12,000, not a big deal, but the cost of the job, Mr. Nemeke later testified, was a, it was a $2,000 job. So in, in scale to the revenue generated by the project, it certainly was a large sum as a citation penalty, proposed penalty amount. And you know that, that point can be argued both ways. It could easily be argued that if indeed that's such a large penalty amount with respect to the size of the project revenue-wise, then it would have paid to, to comply with fall protection standards rather than 
than to take such uh, high financial risks right. associated with the penalty amounts. I think that a lot of the large clients we, we work with, some, some Fortune 500 companies, Fortune 50, et cetera, that this would not be viewed as a large penalty amount, but Mr. Nemeke believed it was. Yeah, right. And so Mr. Nemeke, uh, one of the reasons why he did think that it was such a large penalty is he's, you know, the operator of, of a sole proprietorship called Nemeke's Roofing. Yeah. And he, he was asked by this homeowner to install shingles on the roof. And he, the homeowner, the evidence shows, came to Mr. Nemeke by way of a mutual acquaintance. And uh, so Mr. Nemeke swings around to the lot, the, I, I guess it's like a lumberyard or a supply store where the homeowner had already purchased these shingles, picks up the shingles and brings them to the job site. And he arranges for two other individuals to, to meet him at the uh, job site and to assist. I think one's name is Mr. Anderson and the other is never identified by the compliance officer. He's identified as worker two, Taylor. That is correct. Worker, the mysterious worker two. <laughs> so, so they arrive at the job site on June 29th Mr. Nemeke and these two other individuals, and, and, and the compliance officer observes them on day one before issuing a citation. When he shows up for the citation, Taylor, he, when he contests the citation, I apologize, he, he represents himself through the entire proceedings. And that he's, so he's, he's representing himself pro se, we'd say. He's exactly. coming in without an attorney to assist him or represent him. And so one of the big questions here in this case is, is what is an employer? Section 3.5 of the OSH Act defines an employer as a person engaged in business affecting commerce who has employees. I love, Taylor, these definitions that include the word in the definition. <laughs> I wonder how, how people find that helpful. Right. Uh, so an right. employer is a person who has employees. <laughs> right. It. Exactly. Uh, but of course, as you know, it's, it's a little bit more well drawn out than that. And you're going to talk about the, the Darden test in a moment that, that lays it out a little bit more clearly. Yeah. But, but only an employer can be issued a citation under the act if indeed Section 3 says that the OSH Act only covers employers, right? Exactly. And, and a critical point here as well is that the secretary bears the burden of establishing whether or not a respondent is in, is in fact an employer. And, and the ALJ gets to that when he's issuing his decision, you know, the sort of the burden and whether or not the secretary met it in this case. Yeah, Taylor, this is, the, uh, this is a fundamental principle of law generally is that the plaintiff always carries the, preponderant, the burden of carrying the preponderance of evidence right. on anything he's asserting or she's asserting. And that's true when it's a um, government enforcement or a private civil action, et cetera. It's the moving party that carries the burden. In this case, it would have been the burden that OSHA would have had to carry to show that Nemeke Roofing was indeed an employer right. and thus covered by the act. A burden that really wouldn't, OSHA wouldn't have had to establish, except Mr. Nemeke raised it as one of his defenses. He raised two defenses, this constitutional right that you mentioned earlier uh, to privacy and then he, he raises this idea that I'm not an employer. I didn't employ anyone. So how can the OSHA cover me? And at the moment that defense is raised, I think OSHA has a burden to establish that he is indeed an employer if they want to proceed with their citation, right? Right, certainly. And so what, our, what OSHA argues here is essentially that Nemeke agreed to work for profit and then to perform that work, he enlisted the assistance of Armstrong and Worker too. Which he clearly did. 
he did enlist the assistance, but of course OSHA has to prove that he employed them specifically. He, they never got the name of this second worker, worker two. Right. And I said the, the other worker's name was Anderson, it's Armstrong. So Mr. Armstrong, they asked him questions about the nature of the employment relationship. They asked Philip Nemecki questions about the nature of the work relationship. And they asked the homeowner as well. So, so OSHA's arguing that when we spoke to the homeowner and Mr. Armstrong and Mr. Nemecki, that we, we concluded that they were indeed employees. They were employed by Philip Nemecki or Nemecki Roofing. That's right. And, and Nemecki, to counter that, he argues that he's not engaged in business affecting commerce. One, so, so that's sort of, he, he kind of attacks the definition of employer in two ways. One, he says he's not even engaged in business affecting commerce because Nemecki Roofing is a small sole proprietorship. And then he gets to his second argument, which is about, you know, whether or not he had employees. And he's saying he, that these two were not his employees. Exactly. I, this, this question gets very interesting, of course, because uh, the backstory everyone should know is that he testified both when asked by the compliance officer and then at the hearing, he testified under oath that the homeowner was a cousin and he was doing the job not for compensation. Evidence came out that he was indeed paid $2,000 for the job. The homeowner first, when asked by the compliance officer, are you cousins, lied for Mr. Nemecki, and then later told the truth and said, no, we're not related in any way. Uh, we're, we're just mutually acquainted. We've been friends for a long time. Even that wasn't true. They didn't know each other before the job. And then he later said, no, I, I just said all of that because I wanted everything to go away smoothly. But indeed, I don't know him except for through this job. Uh, the other thing that the that Nemecki lied to about the compliance officer when asked, and then again on on the stand, was the question of how he engaged Armstrong and worker too. And he said, they just show up and help me. I don't pay them. They're not my workers. I don't give them any money. I've known Armstrong for you know, a couple of dozen years. I've taught him everything he knows. So when I need help, he just comes over and helps. Even if that were credible. And that's a big if, of course, but somebody's spending two full days randomly here and there, helping out for free. But even if that were credible, it doesn't really credibly explain the relationship between Nemecki and Worker 2, who he didn't allege he'd known for 20 years or more and had owed him any kind of favor, or had any indebtedness. He, he can only say that about Armstrong and even that as a basis for getting two days of free work strains credulity. But that is his testimony, and that was what he said when interrogated by the compliance officer during the investigation stage as well. That's right, Manish. And so we'll, we'll get to um, the Darden test now. I think it's important to, to cover this. So the Darden test comes from a 1992 uh, Supreme Court case, and the judicial precedent established by Darden incorporates traditional agency law criteria uh, for identifying employer-employee relationships. So specifically, Darden establishes 11 specific factors that courts use when evaluating an individual worker's status. Manish, you're actually very familiar with these factors since you were one of the attorneys who was involved in the landmark decision which applied Darden in the Tenth Circuit. That's right. And so there's, there's a, a number of different uh, permutations of this. There's the, the question of whether somebody's an employee or an independent contractor. Arguably, some, some could argue that two different entities are co-employers. And fundamentally, some of the same factors feature in both of these kinds of tests, such as whether or not the person being engaged had the same kind, was performing the same kind of work 
as that work that was essential to the, the job function of, a, of the engaging enterprise. Here, at least Mr. Armstrong was also up on the roof performing roofing work. Uh, it's not as clear with worker two whether he was doing roofing work or work that was essential to the business model because there was some testimony that he was walking around the grounds underneath just picking up debris. And when he was on the roof, maybe he was just bringing materials up, that kind of thing. But, but with respect to Armstrong, clearly he was observed to be doing that work, which is the business model of Nemeke Roofing, right? So that's one of those factors. There's others, though, Taylor, that I think are at least as important. Yeah, that's right. So the discretion over, over when and how to work, the method of payments, the provision of you know, employee benefits, tax status, you know, these are all factors that the court will go through. In fact, we see, you know, the ALJ kind of go through one by one these factors when, when he makes his decision in the case. Yeah, there's some financial factors like the method by which uh, workers paid, the, the uh, provision of employee benefits, right. and how the employee has been treated for tax purposes, withholding right. for, for, employee, for employment taxes are evidence of how the parties believed that they were related, whether they're related in an employment relationship or an independent contractor relationship, supplying the tools of the trade, as you point out. But I think of all of the ones you just described, Taylor, the most telling is this idea that the engaging party can direct how the work is performed on a minute-to-minute basis. That would look more like an employee, whereas what you'd see with an independent contractor typically is more like, here's the end product. How you get there, how you perform the work to get there, that's your, at your discretion. And the other is this long-term exclusive nature of a relationship. Employees tend to work only for an employer if they're full-time employees, and they tend to do so for long periods of time. Whereas an independent contractor may be hired for a project or for a discrete period of time. You would not likely see, if you see a long-term engagement of an independent contractor, it, that is evidence that sort of erodes away at the assertion of uh, independent contractor relationship and looks more similar to an employee. None of these, Taylor, however, as you know, are singly dispositive on the question. And courts look at all of them in a sort of amalgam uh, and, and look at the, the full weighing and balancing of all the factors to try and get a depiction of the n- true nature of, of the relationship that they're looking at. Right. So the administrative law judge applies the Darden test and issues a decision, Taylor? That's right, he does. And the, first, he dismisses this idea that, that Nemeke wasn't engaged in business affecting commerce. Uh, he says that he, Nemeke was, in fact, engaged in business, despite the fact that he was a sole proprietorship. Yeah, it's interesting. The, the commerce clause of, of the Constitution is actually a constitutional provision that is employed to promulgate statutes. Congress uses it to justify why it has the authority to promulgate statutes. And that is true for the Occupational Safety and Health Act. So engaged in commerce is a critical question, but it's read so broadly that almost every business of any kind, large or small, local or interstate, is viewed as having some impact on interstate commerce. And that's what this judge said. And I think consistent with the existing jurisprudence, it's, it's very difficult for me to imagine any business anymore, given all of the case law, that isn't a business affecting interstate commerce. Yeah, yeah, completely so agree. He, so he dispensed with that argument or defense pretty handily, I'd say. Yeah, agreed. And then so it becomes the question of whether or not Nemeke has, what is an employer if he has employees? 
And, and Manish, like, like you just pointed out, I think the, the ALJ lands on sort of the key factor here that, you know, to be an employer, one must have control over the workers themselves, not just the results, the end product of their work. Yeah. And reminding uh, our members of our 3030 community, what you said earlier, the burden on that point belongs to OSHA. Exactly. And so you, you literally, it was very interesting to see that the ALJ in this case went through all the factors, all the Darden factors, you, know, you can imagine kind of weighing them, you know, on, on, each, on each side just to see where this came down. And so in terms of classifying the two workers as employees, the two factors he found that, that went in that direction were one, that the work that was performed was part of Nemeke's regular business. Um, it, he, you know, he is a, a roofing contractor, and that's the work that was being done. And then two, that it did seem there was evidence to suggest that he controlled the start and end times of when Armstrong and Worker 2 uh, arrived on the worksite and when they ended their day. But, but really, um, you know, we talk about the burden that OSHA needs to prove here. These were really the only two factors that the ALJ found that went towards them being uh, more like employees, but certainly managed a lot of evidence, you know, kind of stacking up that they're more akin to independent contractors. Yeah, just a lack of evidence on the part of uh, OSHA and the solicitor for the Department of Labor to show who these workers were, how they got paid, right. uh, whether they had additional projects with Nemeke, what degree of control he had over the, how they performed their work. OSHA just didn't show up with evidence that allowed the administrative law judge to, to side with them on the question of an employment relationship. Right. One of the interesting things, Taylor, is he said, you know, it's very clear that Nemecki was lying on many different factors in his testimony. And I don't credit those lies. We're yeah. not talking about crediting Nemecki's lies. We're saying that notwithstanding the, uh, the absence of truth on Nemecki's part, there is still an absence of evidence on OSHA's part. And that was their burden. Had they given me any evidence? So, so when you, you have a finding that somebody has lied, you may make an inference of the opposite. You may make an inference that the only reason he would have lied is because he, he felt like he was uh, had a losing argument on that question, on the question of an employment relationship. And so you can look at any evidence from the other side and credit it. But he said on these questions, he didn't see any evidence from OSHA at all. And so the lack of evidence by OSHA was insufficient to surmount or create an inference against Namaki on the basis that it was known that he was lying on a number of matters. Right. Interesting, interesting uh, sort of evaluation. I feel like the administrative law judge uh, was probably in a bit of a dilemma, wanting to make the most punitive value out of having a party come in and lie straight out and get caught in it on a number of different factual assertions. So one of the other things we wanted to cover was this update on independent contractor classification under the Fair Labor Standards Act. OSHA came out with a notice of proposed rulemaking just last month, and this proposed rule would change the factors that determine independent contractor status. There was a, I believe, on a 2021 rule that was, uh, <laughs> I guess, slated to only be in effect for a short period of time now. This proposed rule would rescind that, and that 2021 rule essentially said that the um, two factors, um, so control over the work, and then an opportunity for profit or loss would carry greater weight when determining if a worker was an independent contractor or an employee. But it, but it looks like if it goes through that, that it'll go back to sort of a totality uh, of the circumstances analysis. Yeah, the, the, that rule made sense to me. It's a simplified rule, and it follows common sense that yeah. those two factors are the 
ones that tell the clearest picture of what kind of relationship you're looking at. Some of the factors are just not informative at all, like who provides the tools, whether the worker gets benefits. There's plenty of employees that don't get benefits. Exactly. Uh, so it just doesn't tell us anything. And so to simplify it to those two most telling features seems to just follow common sense. But there is now a proposal to reverse it uh, and go back to this longer test, a test that is oftentimes the subject of protracted litigation and evidentiary disputes and discovery and just uh, unnecessary costliness. So, so it's an important development, a proposed change to the rule to go back to the decades-old 11-point test. We'll see how that develops, and certainly we're happy to cover it in the OSHA 3030. It's not an OSHA matter. It's a question that, that sort of arches across several disciplines within the field of workplace law, right. like the Fair Labor Standards Act, et cetera. Uh, but it certainly also has implications in occupational safety and health law. All right. So Taylor, in light of this case, the, the courts, the judge said, sorry, that he just didn't have enough evidence to find an employer relationship. And one of the important things about that was he acknowledged that even if the respondent, Nemeki, was lying, it doesn't mean that he wasn't also right on the question of whether he was an employer. And I think it's probably true. The way it sounds, Armstrong and Worker 2 were very likely maybe more similar to day labor than to employees, just given the sporadic nature of the engagement and whether or not they were paid. And I think much was made of whether there was evidence that they were paid or that it was believable that they worked for free. My view, having tried these cases all the way up to the U.S. Court of Appeals in one case, is that that doesn't really matter as long as indeed the nature of the relationship was of such a sporadic nature as we see here. It's just not possible to reasonably conclude that this was an employer-employee relationship. And it, it is sort of in the nature of this kind of work to engage on a day labor type basis. Right. So in light of this case, what should employers do? Yeah. So I think the first thing that jumped out to us when we were looking at this is that, so the Darden factors can apply to you know, specialists, consultants, third-party vendors. You know, when you have folks like that, you know, visit your job site, for example, to perform some testing or, or, or certain analysis. To remember these Darden factors, I think the key question is, are, are you controlling the worker themselves or are you controlling the, the end product, the scope of work? Are you providing a scope of work or are you sort of um, you know, having more control over the day-to-day, -day, over how they are actually performing the job, that that sort of activity could lean them more to being your employee? And so to make sure that you kind of set those clear you know, barriers when those folks visit your work site. Yeah, and you know the next point you make is that uh, those Darden factors should be memorialized in a contract with your workers. It's two other tiles here that go to that point, which is one of them should be a re representation in writing that the worker has the ability to accept other jobs, that he does accept other jobs, or that this is temporary in nature, whatever the actual circumstances are in a relationship that go towards a non-employment relationship should be truthfully memorialized. And another one would be the question of control and what degree of control the engaging party has and what degree of control he does not have right. or she does not have, it should be memorialized in writing. 
so next, uh, you know, we talked about the proposed Department of Labor rule. Um, so the comment period on that is actually open for the next two weeks. So it's certainly commenting on that or, you know, at least monitoring it. Certainly things that we'll do and be assisting with here at Keller and Heckman as well. Um, so, so feel free to reach out if that's something that, you know, you're interested in. Yeah. And if your organization is a member of a trade association or industry group, make sure they know how you stand on this question and, right. and support them if you can, if they are going to be participating in comments on behalf of your sector or industry. The other thing I'd say, Taylor, Nemeke lied throughout his investigation and again under oath at trial. The best advice, the best takeaway advice I can give to any employer when confronted with an OSHA investigation is to tell the truth. And the judge noted that although it appears as if Nemeke might have gotten away with the lies that he stated on the record creating a difficult case for OSHA in which they actually failed to prosecute their citations. That is, the judge said, not so. It is a potentially a crime to lie to an OSHA investigator during an investigation, and it is certainly sanctionable to lie under oath. And Nemeke's risks of facing sanctions, including incarceration and penalties for having allegedly done so, are not over yet. OSHA still has the prerogative to examine the record and make a determination as to whether or not there were, in fact, lies sufficient to qualify as violating the standard or to merit the sanctions like I described. Certainly, there was a finding in the record that, the, that he would, had lied. And so, so that is an ill-advised strategy. It little avails an employer to tell a lie to get out of a small citation and then to be faced with much larger consequences associated with the lie itself. Which brings me to the last point, Taylor. Yeah, exactly. Considering uh, talking about decisions that weren't quite all the way uh, thought through, uh, consider the risks of, of being represented pro se. Representing um, yourself, right. Exactly. Uh, you know, Nemeke, guess we could say he got away with it in this case. But as you pointed out, Manish, you know, OSHA really just did not amount, uh, did, did not mount enough evidence, didn't even find the identity of this, uh, you know, employee number or worker number two. And so if he was presented with more of a, you know, more, more evidence on the other side that he had to contest, it, it definitely could have turned out the other way. So certainly consider those risks. That's right. Nemeke's decision to lie during the investigation and again under oath is nothing to sniff at or to be smirked upon. It is a appropriate kind of conduct yeah. I have zero tolerance for. That, of course, is the kind of calculation that maybe somebody who intends to lie is going to make when deciding whether to engage counsel like me who would have no tolerance for it. Right. But, but I will say that the other decisions that he made could be improved upon or perhaps his direction could have been set to a better course with the aid of counsel, particularly one versed in specifically in occupational safety and health law. But sophisticated entities that, that have safety and health compliance challenges that they are committed to working through should be working with counsel and not doing this pro se. But that, that was a decision that Nemeke made. And you know, I, I, as I said before, it's not clear to me from the judge's decision particularly that last remark that he put in his opinion, that Mr. Nemeke's woes are entirely behind him. With that said, Taylor, I think that's the last practical takeaway item. That's the OSHA 3030 for November 2022. As you mentioned before, the entire library of OSHA 3030 episodes going back 10 years. 
is stored on khlaw.com slash OSHA 3030. And I'd ask again, when you get the invitation for the next one to forward it on to others in-house counsel or safety and health professionals, we're available on YouTube and your favorite podcast app. Taylor, you and I are also both on LinkedIn. And so I encourage our listeners to link in with us so that we can stay in touch. Our next OSHA 3030, 1 p.m. Eastern time, December 21, 2022, always on a Wednesday, always Eastern time, 1 p.m. So please stay tuned for an announcement about the topic for next month. I think we're going to have a good one. We already have two or three ideas that we're working through. <laughs> uh, so, so stay tuned. And we have sister programs, the Tosca 3030, the Reach 3030. Both of those are scheduled for December 14th. If your organization is responsible for compliance under those statutes, uh, then stay tuned for, for an email announcement on those or go to our website to register to get on our lists. Taylor, we're going to stick around after we turn off the recordings for the off the record section, but I want to thank everyone who's attended this month's OSHA 3030 for participating and for being a part of the OSHA 3030 community. Your role in the 3030 community just by participating and by forwarding on the invitation to others is vital to the future and the success of the program. So please continue to help support the program just by tuning in. Taylor, thank you very much for, for participating in the OSHA 3030. I enjoyed working with you on this one. And uh, I look forward to seeing everyone again next month. And until then, stay safe. Mm-hmm.